You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and what a topic we have for you in this episode, happiness. Penny LaCasa has written a wonderful book called Hacking Happiness. What is it? How can we deliberately pursue it? And why is the topic of happiness so polarizing? It's all here, ready for your ears. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Penny Lacasso. Penny Lacasso, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me along, Dave. Yeah, well, I'm super excited to have you, Penny. What a topic you've got, and a fantastic book as well, I must say. I'm a real enthusiastic reader of your work. Oh, that makes me happy because I always said if I write it and one person enjoys it, I'll consider that success because for me, you know, if you can impact one life, the on-flow effect of that is amazing. But, you know, I'm always happy to hear when people enjoy my work. So I even did along the way the the online test that you have, the free online test, give it a plug. And I did a couple of the exercises along the way, and I, we talked about that a little bit before we hit record. So your book is all about hacking happiness, bringing happiness deliberately into your life, understanding what goes on to, to, to be part of happiness, what you can say happiness really is, and to understand the myths that exist in society that so many of us have bought into that are actually taking us further away from happiness. So we'll talk all about that in a minute. But I want to talk about the the topic of happiness first of all. You mentioned somewhere in your book, might even be on the back cover, that when you introduce yourself to people as a happiness hacker, you get a, a lot of interest and people are intrigued by that. But I want to talk about society's mindset when it comes to the pursuit of happiness more generally, because it has this in my mind, and you would know a lot better than me, it has this seeming paradox in that there is nothing more important than happiness and understanding what happiness is and the deliberate pursuit of happiness. But when we talk about it in the professional context or even in a sort of a a national political context, it's very quickly by some quarters uh, deemed sort of like quacky as if it's a really silly kind of a or a, or a, a way out there pursuit, as if it's somehow not on not on message, that you're missing the point. If you're talking about the pursuit of happiness, you're missing the grown-up big picture. Do you resonate? Do you you relate to what I'm trying to say here? And is it even a thing? What has surprised me in my journey is how happiness polarizes people. Yeah. And I even the other day had someone on social media saying, is the pursuit in life to be happy or is it to, you know, basically survive? you know, get through life. And, and and this is the beauty of the, yeah, but this is the beauty of the work that I do. I don't sit there and tell you what your happiness should be. I don't sit there and define happiness for you. My whole work is about you asking all the questions that you just put to me yeah, and defining happiness on your own terms and challenging the societal definition of happiness so that you actually arrive at a place or at a definition that is meaningful for you because without it defined in a way that is meaningful for you, how can you ever inject more of it into your every day? So you're right, it does sound fluffy and all the rest of it, but there is so much science 
behind happiness now and how to engage with practices that will enable you through your mindset and your behavior to inject more joy more often into each day. So tell us what are the things in society, what are these myths in society that we have largely bought into that you tell us in your book are actually taking us away in the opposite direction of happiness? What are those myths and why have we bought into them so readily? So I think the myths that I discovered through my pursuit of happiness, the first one was that I was led to believe that if I ticked a series of boxes in terms of my life and my career journey, that one day once those boxes were ticked, I would magically arrive at happiness. And I think it sounds crazy, but for some reason that is what we are led to believe and it's why so many pursue the same sort of path in terms of their career, in terms of the material items that they aspire to, all of those sorts of things. So the first, the myth around that is that the work that I've done has helped me to realise is that happiness is not a goal. It is not an end state. It is a way of being. It is a practice. And if you don't practice it every bloody day, the likelihood is that you will actually in your pursuit of ticking those boxes, you will distance yourself from the things that make you happy. Because what I constantly hear from the people that I work with is that they're busy. You know, their pursuit of success makes them extremely busy. And unfortunately, that level of busy means that they sideline the things that actually do light them up and give them joy. So often happiness comes at the expense of busy. So that's probably another myth that I would you know, dispel that if you pursue success or the traditional path of success, it will distance you from happiness. And the third one that I think is really interesting is that I think our definition of happiness is an interesting one. So I was like, well, happiness is a feeling. And so I was like, well, if I arrive at happiness, I should be happy most of the time, you know, all of the time. But I've realized that that's not healthy, nor is it possible, because how can we experience happiness if we do not know pain or suffering? And so what I did was I redefined happiness on my own terms and my definition of happiness and the way that I now teach people in terms of the skills that I teach is that happiness is being able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you, knowing that you can come out the other side just a little better than what you were before because you have the right skills, resources and support structure to make that happen. And I couldn't I can't think of anything more relevant than that in the context of where we're at right now with COVID. You talk about in your book that uh, one of the large world health organizations, and I can't remember which one it is, has identified overwhelm or anxiety to be a, a global, will be a global pandemic over the next decade because so many people fall into that trap of being super busy because they're they're chasing what they thought was happiness and they they made this decision when they were 22 years old and they they started in the after doing a trade or a university degree or whatever it might be they pursued relentlessly this idea that if they climbed the corporate ladder and and were were able to buy a more expensive home and have nice cars and do all of those things get the corner office all of those cliche things that they would one day be happy and they were just kind of putting off that happiness. They were happy to hurt now and put off that happiness that would magically appear in their life. And we know that that is so often not the case. And some respected health organizations have suggested that overwhelm will be the next global pandemic. 
So my question is simple. Why do so many otherwise intelligent human beings buy into a myth that is so clearly, that demonstrates to them so clearly every day of their life that they are chasing happiness in the wrong direction? I always, it took me 39 years to ask myself what happiness looked like on my own terms. And what I'm trying to do is prevent people from making the same mistake or waiting that long. And I think that, you know, the problem is that people don't challenge the status quo. We're so busy watching what everyone else is doing. And with social media now, so busy trying to keep up, you know, with the image that we want to create, with the lifestyle that we want to cultivate that we just get caught up in the hamster wheel of it all. And so it's much harder to step outside of that and take a massive risk to swim against the school than it is to stay in that even though it leads to often burnout and anxiety and overwhelm and all these other things. It's much harder to step off it than to stay in it. So I think the problem is that we're we're never taught to ask ourselves these questions, especially at an early age. We're not taught to challenge the status quo. It's why one of the the skills that we teach is curiosity because people who challenge the status quo and go against the grains are the, the ones who are seen as the troublemakers at school. You know, they're the difficult ones. We're taught to conform. We're not taught to disrupt. Now, it's a bit different now if you step into the entrepreneurial world because these guys have been shaking things up for a while now. It's encouraged and it's celebrated but if you still, what astounds me is having spent 16 years in the corporate world and, you know, as an executive and now continuing to go back and share my work is that things remain from a mindset perspective relatively unchanged in terms of we still fear failure. You know, we're not encouraged to experiment. Thinking is considered a luxury because we're all so busy doing. Yet productivity in so many ways has become the disease. So we are going to get to the good stuff, folks. We're, we're raking over the coals now of why we're pursuing happiness in a, in a misguided way. And, uh, and we're going to rake over the coals for a bit longer. My listeners know, Penny, that I love to rake over the coals of the drama for a little while first, just to understand how bad the problem is before we get to the answers. And then I'm going to ask Penny all about happiness as a way of being and the steps we can take to understand what that means for ourselves and how we can get there. But let's rake over the coals for a little bit longer. Penny, can you tell me what is hedonic adaption or the hedonic treadmill, which is so nicely described in your book? And when I read it and think about it, I I think of a huge number of people who I know in my life. Yeah, so basically the concept, I mean, it's a scientifically proven phenomenon and basically the concept is that we think that when we get the new car, when we get the nice house, you know, when we tick the boxes I mentioned earlier, that we will be happy. But what the science shows is, and everyone knows this, you know, you have this spike in happiness where you go, oh, I've got the nice car. And I remember years ago I bought an Audi A5 when I was in corporate, right? And I was like driving home and I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I've stolen yeah. someone's car. Like it, it was such a, a boost in confidence and ego. I was like so glamorous and, you know, and it really I was. It did make me happy. But what happened was it made me happy for like, I don't know, maybe a week. And then it was normalized. And so hedonic adaption is basically you drop back down to where you were. You know, so these material things that we think will make us happy, they don't – these external things don't bring long-term happiness they give you a short-term spike and then you will rebaseline back to where you were every time. 
Yeah. And that's why I talk about happiness as a practice because it's the mindset and the behaviors that we have. It's not the external things that will bring us the happiness and the joy. Sadly, we have all of what we need. And I mean, this is going to sound fluffy, but the, it's the reality. We have all of what we need to make ourselves happy within. The problem is that we're not taught how to leverage it in a way that's useful unless we actively seek that out. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. It seems so glaringly obvious. We all know people in our lives who are having success, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but I'm using the air quotes about success because that's a that's a conversation we have to have. And they are chasing that happiness. And you can see the expensive car followed a year or two later by the more expensive car. And you you see the really nice house upgraded to a really amazing house through a ridiculous renovation or even just the selling of said awesome house and buying of even better house. And you see it also on smaller scales as well, the the knickknacks people sort of bring into their life. I wonder if there's a realization of how transparent that is of someone who is chasing happiness, this hedonic treadmill that we talk about. And I want to draw that back to this this fabulous notion, again, through studies and research that you point out in your book that 50% of our level of happiness is what we inherit genetically. 10% only, 10% is through our circumstances. They are the toys that we have, the money in our pocket, the house that we live in, all of the things that we surround ourselves in is just 10% of our happiness. The other 40% is the stuff that we have control over, the choice that we get to make. Tell us a little bit more about that and, and how powerful a concept that is for your students and your clients to understand. So that research came from an amazing woman called Sonia Lubomirsky, who's out of Stanford, and she's one of the most renowned happiness researchers in the world. And so that was where that piece of information came from. And, you know, they've got an amazing part of the university that basically continuously runs research to find out what does make us happy. But that piece of research is one of those pieces of research that's kind of, it's held its own for the test of time, you know. And what it shows is that whilst there's some components of your happiness you can't change, 40% is nearly half, which means that if every single one of us has 40%, that means we've got more than half of what we've got. Or we've got a, just a little less than half of what we've got now that we could actually turn the dial up on. Okay. And I think I always say awareness is that, I mean, you're a change guru, Dave. Yeah. Awareness is the first step to change. Without awareness, there can be no change. And so now that you know that you've got 40% to play with, my challenge is what are you going to do with it? Because I'm yet to meet someone who says, I wouldn't like a little bit more joy in my day. I don't need a little bit more happiness. You know, I mean, I'm a happiness hacker and I always say I'm an imperfect experimenter. I'm not happy every minute of every day and I don't desire to be, but I'm doing the best that I can to make sure that as many days as I can, you know, are around around the things that make me happy and bring me joy. So the real power of your work is understanding those kind of things, understanding that we have complete control over 40% of our happiness and that there are some really deliberate, tangible tools that we can use to bring that into our life, things that we can think about and then action in a, in a very physical 
and practical way. I love that. And one more thing before we get to all of those things, because I love this stat and I've read it a number of times. I think it was my mate, Daniel Kahneman from Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, who did some some research around the fact that, and, and, and you've converted it to Australian dollars. So this is research from someone who's got no agenda. This is a Nobel Prize winning researcher who says that at about 75 grand for us here in Australia, and I imagine it would be pretty similar in the US, so let's convert that to 40, 45 grand in the UK, for example. Anything below that, because you're struggling to make ends meet, you're, you're worrying about the basic paying your bills and putting food on the table and providing for your kids. So anything below that, yeah, that's going to affect your happiness because you've got anxiety. And we all know what happens to the brain when you're constantly under that kind of stress. But the good news is, for most people listening to this podcast, anything above that does not equal extra happiness. The only thing that gives you extra happiness above that has nothing to do with the fact that you earn 75 grand or more. It's the choices that you make in your life. Tell us more about that amazing stat. That's another one, again, that stood the test of time. I think, you know, that was, I think that they discovered that it might have been like the 80s. It was a long time ago. And um, what I find fascinating about that is people still to this day, even with that research out there, believe that if they earn more money, they will be happier. And what I've seen in working with thousands in this space, which just reinforces, you know, the information or the research, is that my observation is often it's the inverse that happens. So often what I observe in the professional world is the more money people earn, more often than not, the more they leverage themselves. Golden handcuffs. Yeah. I, I worked over in Perth amidst the oil and gas boom, and there were people earning a hell of a lot of money and what they seemed to do was buy a hell of a lot more stuff and borrow more money. And I'm generalising, right? But And what ended up happening, as you, you're alluding to, was that people would tie themselves by the nature of the debt that they would take on to have these lives that were keeping up with the Joneses, you know, more in the wealthy space. It would tie them to jobs that made them miserable, which is what the golden handcuffs are, you know. So it's fascinating to me that people who earn not that much can be extremely happy in their lives and often the ones who have a lot become very worried about losing it. And it plays into, as you've said, you know, that that anxiety. They, they become very busy. They become very stressed because they don't want to lose the job because that then impacts the life that they've created. But there's not a lot of happiness going on. I remember a case study that I'd love to sh- – there's a guy I met a few years back, yeah, who's – I never forget it. And he came and saw me speak and he was from a, you know, a, a top four consulting company and he was an executive and he grabbed me afterwards and he said, would you mind if I take you out for coffee at some stage? He said, I'd really like to talk to you about what you've spoken about. I said, yeah, no worries. So we went out for coffee and he said to me, I've got everything you could want from the outside looking in. I've got the amazing job. You know, the kids are all in private schools, the expensive... And he said, I've never, ever been more anxious in all my life. He said, I drive past construction sites and I look at bricklayers in envy and I think that's a job that would bring joy because at the end of the day, you walk away from work. There's a real camaraderie. People aren't trying to step on each other to get ahead. He said, you know what your job is. It's clearly defined. You get paid a set amount and that's it. And I just love that he, in his high-powered job, the bricklayer would have looked at him and gone, oh, this guy's, you know, rich and he's got everything. And he was looking back at the bricklayer saying, 
the bricklayer is happy and I'm not. God, there's something so disastrous about that equation, isn't it? Where both of them are probably looking at each other, wishing they could swap. That's amazing. All right. Now I'm going to ask one crazy question before we get on to the solutions to this, to your wonderful advice in this area. Now, go with me here. Is this some kind of conspiracy? Because the number of governments that talk about a happiness quotient on a national level, you can count on one hand. The number of governments that talk about GDP as a measure of of national success is just about ubiquitous. Is this them just not getting it and not reading the literature, not reading the research, not understanding what is what they could truly do, the, the most powerful things they could do to benefit society? Or is there some kind of conspiracy? Because if we all bought into this, if we all bought into this idea that after 75 grand, happiness is a choice, that somehow society would become less motivated to be the worker bees that we need to be. Never thought of it like that. I think the problem is that, like I said earlier, productivity has become our disease and that's what GDP is. It's productivity, isn't it? So what we measure success on is all linked back to productivity. And until you change the measure of success and redefine success, yeah, and like you say, get people to buy into it, nothing is going to change. And the problem with productivity being the KPI for whether or not you're successful or whether you've done a good job is that it's now created a state where our focus on doing has fundamentally compromised our state of being. And that is why you've had countries performing really well in terms of GDP, and I'm sure you can look at this all around the world and the data will show it. They're doing brilliantly in terms of their productivity, but their mental health issues are through the roof because people, back to the burnout being you know, a global pandemic in, uh, by the year 2025, people are exhausted because they're so focused on productivity. And I don't know, I wonder if it's in, I don't know, is it in the government's interest to keep people being productive and not have them spending time being and thinking and challenging the status quo and being more curious? Like maybe, I, I don't know, it's an interesting question. But again, I think it alludes back to what I said earlier, governments want people to conform. And the sort of stuff that I encourage people to do encourages a lot of free thinking. You know, it encourages a lot of challenging the status quo. It, cha- it encourages a lot of unlearning and surrounding yourself with people who challenge you to look at the world through a different lens. And I don't know how many governments would want a lot of that. No, and when and I've heard it a number of times a saying that there's something like when there's a when there's a choice between judging something as a conspiracy and a stuff up, it's almost always just a stuff up. So perhaps it's less about about subsequent governments acting in this in this conspiracy to keep us all working. It's more likely just not understanding the power of the kind of stats that we're talking about, the 75 grand stat, not understanding the power that it has to change society for the better and and help people who are struggling with anxiety and mental health issues and a, a lack of general happiness and not understanding the power that it could have. And also, what a tough political sell. Because as I was talking at the very beginning of our conversation, when you tell people you're a happiness hacker, I'm guessing that there's a bit of, oh, you know, a bit of quackiness associated with that. Imagine trying to sell that at a federal election when undoubtedly, no matter what color you are in terms of 
your political party, the opposition or the other party would be selling a, a normal kind of economic plan to the public. It would be so easy to make someone who stood on a platform of happiness to look like a quack, someone who doesn't know what they're doing. So we'll leave that there. Where every now and then we drift into politics on this podcast. It's not the main idea, but it, it it exists as such a powerful part of our life. We can't help but mention it occasionally. Let's get to the good stuff, Penny. And I'll be guided by you because essentially I want to ask you, what can we do about it? What can my listeners understand by the end of this podcast that they can tangibly and practically apply in their life? Guide me through this, but perhaps this is a nice place to start. You telling us what intentional adaptability is all about. Yeah. So six years ago, the way that I became a happiness hacker was I basically challenged my definition of success. And when I realized my life was out of alignment to the things that made me happy and what my real definition of success was, I turned everything upside down. So I left, you know, the 16 year career at the absolute top of my game as an exec in a global giant. I relocated the family from Perth back to Melbourne, left an 18 year relationship and started my own company, hackinghappy.co. And the whole point of starting that company was that there was no one out there that could give me a compass or a navigation framework that could enable me to define happiness on my own terms, to actually work out how to navigate bringing more of that into my life and build the skills to do that, and to be able to measure the shift over time in how I was building those skills. And so that was the beginning of the journey. And then probably about three years ago, I came across a concept out of Harvard, which was an article that spoke about it, an AQ, an adaptability quotient. And Harvard said it was more important than an EQ and an IQ in the context of the future because those who could not adapt would be left behind. Well, I'd say that's not Harvard. That's probably Darwin back in 1859 <laughs> that came up with that idea, right? And so what was really interesting was I was like, well, hang on, adaptability as a concept makes a lot of sense to me in terms of helping people, using that as an idea to help people hack happiness. Maybe I can, I can leverage that. But when I looked again at all the research that sat behind this concept of an adaptability quotient, it goes back to where we started. All of it was centered around how do you get the most out of the worker? How do you get the worker to adapt so that they can be more productive? More productive. Not more how do you get... Correct. And I was just sitting there going, well, hang on a second. Here is a brilliant opportunity. What if I could teach people how to intentionally adapt? What if I could teach people to bring consciousness and meaning to the forefront of the decisions that they make, yeah, and that way they could actually adapt in a way that was meaningful for them? Surely that would provide a foundation for greater happiness. And so that was where it began. And so what I then did was something a little bit crazy. I went out to a number of my really big global clients like KPMG and Microsoft and Mercer, and I said, I want to build an intentional adaptability quotient. I want to use it as a basis to create an impactful way and sustainable way for people to inject more of what matters into each day. And I reckon that if we can pull this off as a byproduct of people being happier at home and in work, productivity will be the outcome. Do you know what I mean? If you enjoy what you're doing, you're more engaged, you're more enthusiastic. And so that was where the journey began. And then I basically went out and said, right, well, what are the skills someone with a high intentional adaptability quotient would have? What are the behaviors they would display? And how would we measure it? And what would that look like? And so I defined your intentional adaptability quotient as the me your measure, well, it's your, your level of skill in change or intentional change. It's how skilled you are at making intentional change 
in a complex and uncertain environment that is evolving at speed. And I think the reality is that is life as we know it. And so that's what I built. And now we have, as you alluded to, we have an online assessment that people can do for free, which would be where I would say start your journey because there is no greater gift than holding the mirror up at the very beginning of any change that you want to make to understand where your opportunities lie. So I don't do much of the talking in the little bit of time that we have left. Penny, tell us about the three critical skills that exist within your intentional adaptability idea. The idea that you say is is bringing conscious and, and meaning, bringing conscious meaning to the forefront of our decisions. And we've already talked about the fact that 40% of our happiness is in our hands. 40% of our happiness has got nothing to do with our job, nothing to do with our bank balance, nothing to do with the house that we live in, nothing to do with the genes that our parents gave us, but it's in our hands right now. So what are those critical skills that sit within intentional adaptability? Yeah, so there are three. And I say these are the foundations because I don't even think we have the foundations as a skill set. So the first one that we teach people is focus. We teach people how to focus in a world that is now designed to distract them and create the space to think, to explore, and to experiment, and just to be. The second thing that we teach people, and and that focus is really about dealing with the busy epidemic in many ways. It's removing that as a barrier. The second thing we teach people is courage. And the way that we teach courage is we teach people how to use fear and failure as levers to shape the change that they want to see in their own lives and in the world around them, rather than use fear and failure as barriers to change. And then the third component is curiosity. And so we teach curiosity as a state of being, not something you do in your spare time, of which many professionals tell me they have none. We teach people how to have curious conversations again, how to listen more than have opinions and make statements. And so They're the three foundational skills that we teach as part of amplifying what we term your IAQ, your intentional adaptability quotient. And they're centered around, you keep saying the 40%, they are centered around helping you leverage that 40% to the best of your ability. Hey, I love these, the the focus, this explore and experiment and dealing with the busy epidemic. Courage is using, using levers for change in your life and curiosity is is about being curious, not just setting time aside for being curious, but being curious all the time, listening more than talking, asking great questions, and being generally interested or gen- genuinely interested in the things going on around you. Just give us an example or two of practical changes you've seen clients really successfully make in those three areas that have a material impact on their life. Mm. So the reason I call myself a happiness hacker is because I'm all about change in bite-sized pieces. So I'll give you a couple of hacks, but like I say, what works for you might be different to works for someone else, but the ones that have the greatest impact. So for focus, the first place I get people to start is the language you use determines your ability to make change, right? So negative inputs in means negative outputs and vice versa. So the first thing I challenge people to do is remove the word busy from your vocabulary. Try it for one week. We call it the busy equals bullshit challenge. Now, I did this a few years back and I don't use the word busy unless I'm doing like I am now talking about why you don't want to use it. And instead, I swapped it out for a word called, uh, two words, positively engaged. So what started happening was when people asked me how I was, I would say I'm positively engaged. 
and they would stop dead in their tracks because they were so used to hearing everyone use the default response of I'm busy. And then they would turn around and say, what the hell are you doing? Because most people are not positively engaged, right? And so it's not a standard response. And I would say, my life is full, but I'm doing things I love. Most people are snowed under. Yeah. And when I said my life is full and I'm doing things I love, then they're like, well, what do you do? And so what was fascinating to me was when I stopped using busy, the amount of noise that it removed from my head that I didn't even realize that it was there. And I spoke to a psychologist about this. Busy perpetuates busy. And when you say you're busy, you are spinning the hamster wheel in your brain. So just stopping saying it will slow this down. The second thing was it changed the dialogue in terms of connection and conversations. People were so much more open to a conversation because busy shuts a conversation down. Yeah. So just challenge people for one week, remove the word busy from your vocabulary. For fear or for courage to get rid of fear, the most powerful practice for myself and for others, and everything I recommend I use myself, is a practice called micro bravery. And basically, micro bravery is this whole idea where I'm sick of hearing people say, you know, it's time you've got to get comfortable with discomfort. Let's all get comfortable with discomfort. And it's like, that's great, but what the hell does that mean? Like, how does one do that? Well, micro bravery is exactly the how. And so what it is, is it's doing one small thing every day that makes you feel uncomfortable. Don't compare what makes other people feel uncomfortable. Stop looking outwards. Just do one small thing that makes you feel uncomfortable. So for me, a couple of weeks back, it was getting back on a horse for the first time in 20 years or signing up for a drawing class at the start of lockdown when my best drawing ability is a stick figure. This is what micro-bravery looks like for me, to give you a couple of examples. But the kicker of micro-bravery is that the more that you lean into it, it builds your courage and confidence and self-belief. And so what ends up happening is if you do this every day, you will realize that the things that you are afraid of or that make you feel uncomfortable are nowhere near as bad as what you thought. And you're actually not going to get the bad responses as often as you thought. And so you start leaning into bigger risks and bigger opportunities over time. And then in terms of curiosity, I always start with awareness. And so I would say in your next meeting or in your next conversation with someone, Sit down and as you go through your conversation, don't change anything. Just observe how much time you spend talking versus how much time you spend asking questions and note it down. And then the next time you go into a conversation, your only goal is to reduce your talking and to increase your amount of questions and just observe what happens. Now, they are all very simple hacks, but like I say, it starts small and see where it takes you. This is about experimentation. It is a practice. It is like yoga. It's about showing up on the mat every day and trying because that is how you get better at this stuff. There is no silver bullet. Penny Lacasso, I've enjoyed this chat as much as I hoped I would. I love those little micro tips, those little hacks you've given us. I love the the whole idea of intentional adaptability and just the fact that you are are working stoically to bring the conversation of happiness into the mainstream. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to have this conversation. And that was Penny Lacasso. Loved it. In Penny's words, happiness is a way of being And that whole discussion around the relationship between success and happiness, valuable stuff. Happiness is such a grown-up, important pursuit. 
and I for one think it should be much more front and centre, and I for one think it should be much more front and centre in our personal, community and professional conversations. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Penny on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.